Well, you guys, last night, uh, last night I did something that I have not done since high school. Um, I got drunk. No, I, uh, I, uh, <laughs> what I did last night was I, <clears throat> we had a, you know, we had services here and everything. So I recorded the Laker game. You know, I don't know if you guys ever do that. You know, you're going to miss an event, so you record it, and you don't want to hear the, the score or anything. Um, and went home and watched it. But uh, I remember in high school, I used to do that all the time. And I don't know if you've ever done it where uh, you record a game, and then you end up accidentally hearing the final score. You know, whether it's on the radio or someone gets so excited, they tell you. And so you go home and you watch the game anyways after hearing the score, but it's just not the same. You know, there's no sense of panic. You look at it, and he's like, oh, okay, they're behind by 20, but I know they come back. You know, and you just kind of watch, and you know it's going to happen. And so it takes away all the panic, all of that fear of who's going to win. And you guys, the truth is, is that's what the book of Revelation does for us, okay? It tells us the final score. It tells us what's going to happen at the very end. And, and what the Bible also teaches in Revelation is it explains that, you know what? Our world is going to get worse and worse and worse before it gets better. And so what it does for us as Christians is as it gets worse, we can kind of watch it and go, okay, I'm not happy with this, but I also knew it was going to happen. I'm not going to panic. I'm not going to worry because I know what's going to happen at the end of the fourth quarter. You know, I know the final outcome. And you guys, really, as we study in the book of Revelation over the next few weeks, what it's going to describe is it's going to describe what uh, the world is going to look like at the end as far as uh, what Satan is doing. It's going to show the Antichrist kingdom. We're going to be studying that in a couple weeks with the 666, the mark of the beast, and all that that's going to go on. Um, We're going to study uh, about Satan himself and what he's trying to do on the earth during that time. And, and, And even today, we're going to see... Um, Just the beginnings of that, of how the world, as we know it, is going to get more and more anti-Christian, against the morality of God. And and I think, you know, even though I haven't been alive for very long, I've seen it happen in my own lifetime. I haven't been a Christian that long, and yet I see just the way the world views Christianity and how it changes every year. And I mean, and you see the things that used to be acceptable and what's acceptable today. I mean, it's amazing. And do you guys think it's going to turn around? It uh, doesn't look that way, does it? And really what the Bible teaches is that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Now, why would God do that? Why would God allow things to get worse? I mean, why doesn't God just send Jesus right now? Why doesn't Christ return right now before we go through, you know, there's this future period where people are so hostile toward Christianity, even in our own country and worldwide? Why would he have that happen? Because already people are doubting God and they're questioning him and saying, well, if there's a God, why is there so much evil in the world? What's it going to be like when there's going to be more evil in the world? Because God predicts, he says, that's going to happen in the book of Revelation. Why would he let it get so bad before he came in at the very end and turn everything around? No one knows for sure, but we do know that that's God's pattern in Scripture. I don't know if you've noticed this when you study your Bible, but you notice that God makes situations so desperate just so that he can show his power. I mean, think about it. Think about when the Jews were leaving Egypt and Moses leading them out there. It took him forever just to get Pharaoh to okay it. After all the plagues, they finally go. But now he has them backed up against the Red Sea. And he's got the whole Egyptian army coming towards him. Why did God do that? 
Why didn't he put them in such a desperate, a really hopeless situation? They got the sea on one side and they got an army coming at them at the other side. What are you going to do? It's impossible, right? Well, that's the situation God puts people in so he can show his power. So he could split the Red Sea and have them move on. Why did he get them in the middle of the desert where there's no food so they could starve to death? No, he put them in a hopeless situation so that he could have bread come from heaven and rain down for them to eat. How come when Jesus found out that Lazarus was getting was sick, how come Jesus just kind of sat around and waited for a while before he went and visited him? And he gets over to Lazarus' house and everyone says, Jesus, you're too late. It's hopeless now. He's been dead for days. You don't even want to go in his tomb. It's going to stink. That's what Scripture says. He stinketh, it says in the King James. <laughs> Literally. And it says, don't go in there. It's too late. This is a hopeless situation. If you came a few weeks ago, maybe you could have healed him, but now he's dead. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And he tells Lazarus, come forth. Why? If it didn't get that hopeless, God wouldn't have been able to show that much power. You think of Jesus himself. Jesus is crucified. The spear is stuck in his side. And you see the blood and water come out. He is dead. He is buried in a tomb. And all the disciples say, okay, forget it. We're leaving. It's over with. It's hopeless. We thought he was the Messiah, but he's dead now. He can't be the Messiah. And everyone fled. Everyone just says, it's over with. And God says, it's not over. Let me show you my power. See, that's what God does, and that's what he does in this book of Revelation, is he lets things get so bad to where the world goes, it's over. Christ, I mean, that, that whole thing, it's gone. And God says, no, it's not. Let me show you just how powerful I am. And you guys, the truth is, is that the story of Moses, the story of Jesus, the story of Lazarus, the story of Revelation, it's probably the story of some of your lives. Or some of you in this room could say, you know what, I was in a situation that was hopeless. Where I was backed up against the Red Sea. And you would think, there is no way out. And I've heard testimony after testimony of people who say, man, God took me to a point where I just thought, there's no way I'll recover from this one. Then look at where I am today. And many of you have told me, gosh, five years ago, if someone told me I'd be sitting in a chair in a church worshiping God, I would have said, you were crazy. And here I am. Why did God take it to that point just to show you how powerful he is? And that's what we'll see him do here in the book of Revelation, chapter 11. In verse 1, remember John has just eaten the scroll. He said it turned his stomach sour. Remember that, that whole thing we talked about a couple weeks ago? Here in verse, chapter 11, verse 1, something else happens. It says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. But exclude the outer court. Don't measure it because it's been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Okay, what is this all about? John was just given a scroll to eat, and now he's given this measuring rod and says, go and measure the temple of God. Why is God having him do these physical things? Well, that's another thing that God has done with his prophets. Um, in the Old Testament, sometimes he would have the prophets not just speak the message, but he'd have them act them out. In fact, he told Isaiah, he says, you know what I, what I want you to do, Isaiah, is go and walk around naked. I mean, really. And, and, and so Isaiah walks around the city naked, 
And people are saying, hey, uh, why are you doing that? And, he, he, and, and the whole point was he was supposed to tell them, look, Egypt is going to be taken into captivity by the Assyrians. You see me, how I have nothing? That's going to happen to you. The Assyrians are going to take you away, and you'll have nothing. And everyone would remember that image. You know, it's hard to forget a naked man walking around, you know. And, and they'll equate that and go, okay, I remember that picture. God was telling us. That was his judgment saying, look, this is going to be us pretty soon. He was prophesying the future. He, God told Ezekiel, he said, Ezekiel, dig a, dig a hole through the city wall. And then I want you to grab all of your clothes, like, like luggage, and pull them through the city wall hole and start walking away. And people would be saying, well, what are you doing? And saying, in the same way, you're going to be taken out of the city gates and all your possessions. You guys are going to have to leave this area when the Assyrians come in. And, and so God would have these people physically, you know, have props. Yeah, that's why I do what I do. You know, I mean, it, it, it's something about the visual picture that he wanted the people to get in their heads. He says, so he, here he tells John, he goes, I want you to take this measuring rod. It's like a yardstick. And go and measure the temple. And the whole idea was this picture of, a, of, of measuring this section that belonged to God. If you want to read more about this, read Zechariah chapter 2. Okay, not right now, but, but write that down. Zechariah chapter 2, and read it later because you see the same type of imagery used there where it's showing the judgment upon a city, and that's why Zechariah is me- measuring it there. And it's really the same type of situation here. God is marking off this area for judgment. And yet look what he says in verse 2. Because he's in, he's in Jerusalem here uh, at the temple. But in verse 2 he says, But exclude, don't measure the outer court, because it's been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Okay, Gentiles is a term for unbelievers. Okay, the, 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 the people who didn't believe in the God of the Jews, they would just say they were the Gentiles. They didn't believe in the one true Yahweh God. And what God says in this passage here in Revelation 11 is that this temple mount, this area, and really he says the whole city is going to be trampled upon, taken over by the unbelievers for 42 months. Okay, what is the significance of the 42 months? I've alluded to this before. Okay, 42 months, that's three and a half years. Now, understand, in Daniel chapter 9, it talks about a seven-year period. This is Old Testament now. Daniel chapter 9 talks about a seven-year period, what we call the tribulation period in the end times. You may have heard that term before, the seven-year period. Now, it says, and really, the book of Revelation most of it focuses on what's going to take place during those seven years that Daniel prophesied about hundreds of years ago. Okay, what's going to take place? Well, thousands of years ago now. What, what's going to take place during that seven-year period? Daniel 9 describes that during that seven-year period that someone is going to make a covenant or a treaty that will allow the Jews to restore their temple worship and sacrifice. Okay? And he promises for seven years the Jews will be able to restore their sacrifices there in the Temple Mount, there in Jerusalem. Now, it says also that in the middle of those seven years, that treaty will be broken three and a half years into it, or 42 months into it. That the Antichrist is going to set up an idol in the temple and say the Jews are no longer allowed to worship and offer up sacrifices here. 
believers in God can't do that anymore. Now you must worship my image. And for that whole second three and a half years, it's really talking about the Antichrist and his reign, which we'll get into in a little bit. And that's what it's talking about here when it says during those 42 months, that three and a half year period, that the city is going to be trampled upon. Now, that's really interesting if you look at the events and what's going on right now in Israel. Okay? There's no peace in Israel. Why is there no peace in Israel? Because of ongoing fight between the Jews and the Arabs. Now, what is at the Temple Mount? There's no temple, no real temple there. Um, there's, a, there's a hideous temple there that uh, absolutely degrades everything we believe in. Um, the, the Dome of the Rock, they call it, which is inscribed on the inside of the Dome of the Rock. It says, there is one God and he has no son. Okay, so blatantly anti-Christian and it's sitting there on the Temple Mount. Okay, now you've got the Jews, you know, who are standing at the Wailing Wall to that area, and they're weeping because of what's on that mount. They're weeping because they want God to return. They want to, they want to worship there, but they can't because the Muslims have their mosque there. They have the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and they have the Temple Mount right there. Now, there's not going to be peace in the Middle East until something is solved. Who gets to worship on that, that holy mount? I mean, they both say it's their holy site. You know, and, and really, if you study the history of, of the Muslim religion, I mean, it really started to destroy Judeo-Christianity. You know, and, and so they're not going to let go of it. And the Jews say they, they want to build their temple. In fact, there's a group, and I think I've talked about them before, the Temple Faithful. There's a group of people in Israel today, in Jerusalem today, who swear up and down that they are going to rebuild that temple. In fact, I visited their shop when I was there just a, a couple months ago. And do you realize, you know how in the Old Testament there's all these speculations of what's supposed to go, in, not spec, specifications of, of, of all the, the utensils that have to be in the temple and how they got to be made just perfectly this way, that way, you know, made of different uh, types of metals and this and that, just elaborate things. Do you realize that there is a group called the Temple Faithful that have already reconstructed all of those utensils? what they tell us. They have reconstructed everything that's supposed to go in the temple except for the ark because they say they know where it is. Now, I don't really believe them, but, I was, you know, it's like, ah, shut up, you know. But, uh, yeah, I wasn't going to say that, but they said, no, 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 we, we know where it is. You know, and the girl, you know, was explaining, uh, we know exactly where it is. I can tell you where it is. Like, oh, okay, whatever. Anyways, they, they've reconstructed all the things, and they say, you know, we know where the ark is, and we're going to rebuild this temple. And not only that, but uh, they, they, they are raising currently the red heifers that they would use to, to offer sacrifices up there. They're breeding those. Not only that, but they are training up the priests to carry out the temple duty. Okay, so you've got this group of people that are ready to go and say, it's going to happen. All we've got to do is get up there and build this thing, and, uh, and they will come. But... Uh, I didn't say that, but uh, you know, but but you know that that's what they're waiting for now. Now they can't do that though because of the Muslims up there. Now, what if someone came along? I mean, Clinton tried to bring peace to the situation, didn't happen. Um, Bush tried it; it's not happening. Um, what if someone did come along right now, today, and was able to bring peace to this this war that's been going on for thousands of years, really? between the Jews and the Arabs, 
What if someone was able to bring peace to that situation and say, here's a treaty that both sides agree to, and it allows the Jews to worship up there on the Temple Mount um, along with the Muslims. Um, can you, can't you see the whole world kind of going, wow, peace in that situation? And you can see why people would follow that type of world leader. And you can see how he could rise to power and become, really, you know, and be the Antichrist that the Bible talks about, who during the middle of his seven-year treaty breaks it off and says, no, the Jews are no longer allowed to worship on this mount. I'm going to set up my own idol, and you guys need to worship this. In fact, the whole world needs to worship me. And you see how it would kind of make sense. Well, that's... I kind of went way beyond what I wanted to. But... uh, that's, uh, that's what this is talking about. That trampling period is that second three and a half years where the Antichrist will have his kingdom and it's, it's a Gentile ruling thing. It's, it's all about people who don't believe in the true God, Yahweh, or refuse to worship him. Now, what is God going to be doing at that time? Because remember, the, the Antichrist is going to be killing people who don't have the mark of the beast. So Christians are being killed all the time Who's going to stand up for God? Who's going to be his witnesses? That's what this passage is about. Verse 3. He says, I'll give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Okay, 1,260 days, that's three and a half years. And then uh, clothed in sackcloth, that's what uh, prophets of doom used to wear. And it says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. I don't have time to get into that, but uh, basically read Zechariah chapter 4 if you want to understand the lampstands and the olive trees. But real quickly, what does a lampstand represent in the book of Revelation? Church, yeah. It, it represents the churches. Remember that from the first few chapters, how there were seven lampstands representing the seven churches? And it represents a church because it's the light of the world. As Jesus says, you know, you are the light of the world. You are the lampstands. Now, these two witnesses are called the lampstands because I I believe it's because the church has been raptured at this point. And you've got these two witnesses who really are the light to the world. In many ways, they are the, the witnesses for God. As far as the olive trees, what those represent, you'll see it in Zechariah also. The olive trees are what produce the olive oil that fueled the lampstands. So they symbolize the Holy Spirit, really, that fuels these people and gives them power, and tremendous power. Because remember, people are being killed for speaking up about Jesus Christ. What enables these two witnesses to speak up and not die? That's the cool part. That's the next verse, verse 5. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. It's kind of a nice gift to have. And it says, uh, this is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Okay, so these men have tremendous power. That's why they're not killed. Anyone who tries to kill them, they have the power to kill their persecutors. Um, Now, who are these two witnesses? We're not sure. No one can be absolutely sure. I mean, it could be anyone. It could be people in this room. Yes, I could be one of the witnesses. No, seriously. Maybe I am, and I'm not telling you. All right. Go ahead and laugh. You know. No, uh, 
it could be someone who's alive on the earth today, or it could be someone who's yet to be born, or, and this is what a lot of people believe, and I, I think I lean toward this. Okay, I don't really think I'm one of them. Um, that it's someone from the past that comes back. And there, there's a, a group of people, there's quite a few people who believe that these two witnesses are Moses and Elijah okay, from the Old Testament. And the reasons are, 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 are there's several good reasons to take this educated guess. Um, one is because of the things that Elijah and Moses did when they were on the earth. And you compare them to what these guys do. These guys breathe fire on and kill their, their, uh, their enemies. And that's exactly what Elijah did. Two times. One, one time there was a group of guys, of 50 soldiers that came to arrest Elijah. And Elijah calls fire from heaven and fire burns the 50 people up. 50 more soldiers come to Elijah to arrest Elijah. And uh, Elijah does the same thing. Calls fire from heaven and burns the people up. A third group comes to Elijah, you know, and you think they learned, but these people look at Elijah and go, okay, we know what you did to the last guys. Please don't fry us. You know, and so he doesn't. He has mercy on them. But you also remember um, on Mount Carmel when uh, the prophets of Baal are all, you know, challenging Elijah, or Elijah's really challenging them, and he calls down fire, you know, to, to consume that sacrifice. If you don't know a lot about the life of Elijah, even if you do, next week Doug is preaching on Elijah. Doug Fox is going to be speaking on the life of Elijah. And it's an incredible story um, and when you study the man. But also, what else did Elijah do? Remember in James chapter 5, and in talking about prayer, it says, you know what? Remember the prayer of Elijah. Elijah was a powerful man. What did he do? He prayed that it would not rain on the earth, and it did not rain for how long? Three and a half years. Okay, isn't that interesting that these men have the power to, you know, breathe fire from their mouths to consume their enemies and they can shut up the sky so it does not rain and they're witnesses for three and a half years. So people say one of them is Elijah and they say the other guy is probably Moses because it also says they have the power to turn water into blood. That's what Moses did. They also have the power to strike the earth with every kind of plague. That's what Moses did. And here's the clincher is in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus went up to the mountain with a couple of his disciples. And remember, Jesus is transfigured before them, and they get to see some of his glory, but they also see two people with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. So, okay, it could be coincidence, but it seems to make sense. You're going to go, okay, that, that could be them, but it, I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying that's a good educated guess. Anyways... Um, so they, they are speaking for God, and they will proclaim the gospel to the world, you know, and no one can touch them until verse 7. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Okay, this is Satan. Satan comes out of the abyss, and he actually kills God's two witnesses. Now, how does the world respond? Verse 8. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, that's Jerusalem, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them, and will celebrate by sending each other gifts, because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Okay, what is uh, what's going on here? 
these two guys are dead now, but no one buries them. They leave them on the streets. Why? Because they want to show the whole world. They want, to, they want the whole world to see that God's witnesses are dead or who claim to be God's witnesses. It's the whole point of this idea that, you know what, look, it's over with. The only witnesses that God had on the earth, they're dead. He wasn't the all-powerful God that everyone spoke about. Because, look, his witnesses are dead now. Now, it says that everyone in the world is going to be gloating over them and looking at these bodies and celebrating. Let me ask you something. If this happened a hundred years ago, could everyone in the world see the dead bodies? If it happened today, could everyone in the world see the dead bodies? You know, people from every language, it's, it's this whole idea, and I'm not saying anything other than, you know, it's, it's just some interesting stuff because when you, you read some of the end time events, it talks about how the whole world gets to see certain things. You know, this isn't the only situation. Now, what happens is these people are all gloating. I mean, the reason why they don't bury them, because that's a pretty inhumane thing to do in our day and age, isn't it? To leave bodies out in the middle of this populated city. But the whole point is so that everyone can come and see and gloat over them. Because you can imagine, probably a lot of people are going to come and they'll want to see this thing. And with our transportation, they can, they can fly over there and look at it and see these dead bodies on the street. Now... It also says that, uh, what else do they do other than gloating over them? It says they'll celebrate by sending each other gifts. Think about that. You guys, what's the only time of the year when everyone gets together and passes out gifts? Christmas. What do we celebrate on Christmas? The birth of Christ. And what has the world been trying to do, especially in the last five to ten years? Have you noticed that? How Christmas, you can't even say Christmas anymore. It's wrong to say Christmas. You guys say happy holidays. The world's trying to get rid of Christmas. And here's the ultimate. is Well, let's celebrate. Now is the time to pass out gifts. Because why? Christianity is finally dead. It's finally over with. It's hopeless. So now let's pass gifts out. The one celebration where we used to send gifts to each other in honor of Jesus Christ... You know, they say, you know what, this is the day where we send gifts out because Christ has been conquered once and for all. His last two witnesses are over. There is no power. Evil reigns. The Antichrist, he's, our, he's the one we follow. Pretty hopeless situation. Can you imagine what it would feel like? I mean, if you had some sort of hope in God through these two witnesses, now they're dead. You realize, okay, maybe God wasn't all he said he was going to be. Maybe he isn't all powerful. Looks pretty hopeless. Until you get to the next verse. Verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. And terror struck those who saw them. There's an understatement. (laughs) Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. See how quickly things change? One second, they're celebrating. They are mocking God. I mean, they're trying to picture this. Imagine you are there 
one of the unbelievers that's looking at the dead bodies, you're celebrating, you're passing out fruitcake, you know, you're, you, you know, you're passing out gifts to everyone, it's like, hey, they're dead, they're dead, celebrate. You know, and everyone is looking at these dead bodies. I mean, can you imagine what a fiasco it's going to be? It's roped off and there's security, but everyone's looking on, just celebrating, cheering, just so excited that these two, we killed them. We are all powerful. You know, we're the human race. We killed them. It's, it's over with. We have shown there, there's no God. We have killed his witnesses. They're celebrating. They're, 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 they're sending gifts. And then suddenly as they're looking and they're cheering, the two bodies come to life. What would that feel like? The very people you are mocking stand up. Unless you think it's some sort of trick. You hear a voice from heaven say, come up here. And you see these bodies start to rise. Not only that, as they are rising in the air, an earthquake hits. Buildings are collapsing all around you. Thousands of people are dying. At that moment, everyone else who was alive in that area goes, okay, we were wrong. And what do they do? It says they were terrified and they gave glory to the God of heaven. At that moment, they finally come to a point where they say, enough. Remember all through the book of Revelation how it says the people still wouldn't repent? They still wouldn't give glory to God. They just got more and more rebellious. At the very last moment, those who are still alive at this point, we don't know how many are left, but they finally go, okay, I give all glory to the God of heaven. That term, understand, the term the God of heaven was the term that was used in the Old Testament that would distinguish God, Yahweh God, from all other gods, from all other religions. It was saying these people finally at the end say, we believe in the one true God now. We believe in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in Him. That is the God they are giving glory to, the true God, as these two witnesses are taken up into heaven. And as they're taken up into heaven, they, they show the scene in heaven. In, in verse, uh, well, verse 14, it says, The second woe has passed. The third is coming soon. That's talking about the sixth trumpet is gone. And now in verse 15, it says, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. Remember, there were seven angels. This is the last one. Sounds his trumpet, the last trumpet. And it says, And there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. Can you imagine that? You know, after you see them rise, then suddenly you hear this heavenly host, you hear these loud voices from heaven screaming out, this world that has been under the rule of these people is now under the rule of Jesus Christ Himself. You get to hear that. And then it says in the, in the next verse, in verse 16, it says, The 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God, we've talked about them, they fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. So now the 24 elders saying, This is it. God, you are beginning to reign now, and you're going to reign forever in the time of your wrath. I mean, by then, they've already seen a lot of God's wrath. But now he says the ultimate time of God's wrath, the judgment day. See, because he says in the next verse, verse 18, 
The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. He's saying it's judgment day. It's time to judge those who've been mocking you. It's also time to judge those and actually to reward those who reverenced you, who feared you. Let me ask you something. If today were judgment day, I mean, can you imagine? You heard those voices from heaven. The trumpet blows. The voices say, this is it. Time for judgment. If that were today, if that were right now, how would you feel? What would go through your mind right now if you heard a voice from heaven say, the time has come. It's time to judge. It's time to reward. What would go through your mind right now? It's the same things that you've been thinking about this week. I mean, think about it. What, what, what occupied your mind this week? What were the things you worried about, you were consumed with, you were striving after? Think about things you were striving after this week and consumed with. Will any of that matter on Judgment Day? I hope so. I hope you've been focused on things that will matter in the end. But I'm willing to bet that a lot of you say, no, things I worried about this week, in the end, they just won't even matter. Yes, don't you see that's exactly what Satan wants you to do, is fill your days with things that don't matter? In the end, strive after possessions and positions and things that on Judgment Day you're going to care less about. Because this, this book is supposed to encourage us to live in such a way as, as we look forward to this judgment and do things that we'll actually care about on that day. Just understand, no matter how tainted the world gets, God is still on His throne. Okay, Judgment Day is still coming. And you guys know that. In fact, the Holy Spirit was sent into the world to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I believe everyone in the world knows deep down inside that a judgment day is coming. Whether you deny it or not, the Holy Spirit has revealed that to you. That's what He was sent on the earth to do, to convict you of judgment. Are you ready for that? Because God is on His throne. And the world's going to try to tell you that no, He's not. He's not watching. There's no God. And it's going to get more and more like that. But God says, despite what happens on this earth, I'm telling you it's going to get worse, but I'll still be on my throne in heaven. In fact, that's what He says in the very last verse. I mean, look at verse 19. This is, this is very important. It says, God's, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within His temple was seen the Ark of His Covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. See, you're going to be able to see in heaven that God's temple, even though the earthly temple was being desecrated, God's temple in heaven was still there. Even though the ark may not be in this earthly temple, God says, look up at the one in heaven. The ark is still there. Everything's under control. Okay? No matter how chaotic it gets on the earth, God says, my kingdom has always been. It's not of this world. Everything is okay up here. You guys, do you believe that right now? Do you believe that God is all-powerful and that in the end He's going to show His power, but He's going to let it get worse before it gets better? You see, 
when we're talking about God, if you're a Christian, the word hopeless should be out of your vocabulary. You know, and just talking about the things of God, you, you have no idea what God can do. Some of you come here today and you say, you know what, my, my marriage is hopeless. I guarantee you I can show you a marriage that was in worse shape than yours that is restored now because the people put faith in God. Some of, you, some of you look at your kids and you say, you know what? It's hopeless. They'll never walk with God. But guys, I guarantee you I can find people who are further away from God, who did things twice as bad, and yet they're walking with the Lord today, and some of those people are in this very room. And God took them to a point of hopelessness just so that he can show his power. And you guys, here, here the two witnesses are, dead, lying in the streets, what seems like a hopeless situation, and that's, that's when God just thrives. <laughs> Those are the situations that you just see God in the Bible over and over again, just showing off his power. You guys, maybe that's what God has called you to do, is to get on your knees and say, God, show me your power now, because I think I'm hopeless enough. I think the situation has gotten so bad that only you can salvage it, and I believe that you can. I'm not saying that he, he does everything you want him to do, I've just seen it in so many people's lives where God has taken us to a point where we thought there's no way God can make anything of my life. And yet those are the very people he uses to show his power. you pray with me? Father, I thank you. And I believe that you are an almighty God. And Father, you could cause me to rise up in the air and be taken to heaven right now. You can do anything you want. You are the almighty God. And God, though this world does not believe in you, we do. And we have come here today to worship you. And though this world will not honor you, we will honor you and declare that this is your world. It belongs to you and you will reclaim it one day. And so we worship you now. And God, as uh, we give to you of our gifts, God, we recognize that all of our possessions are really not our possessions. They are your possessions that you have entrusted to us because this whole world belongs to you. Everything in our pockets belongs to you. The homes we live in belong to you. And so, God, as we give to you, we're only giving back what belongs to you. And I just pray that you're honored by it. God, you're an awesome God. And I pray that you are uh, truly honored as we sing to you and as we give to you. In Jesus' name.